between the wisdom passed down by ancient healing traditions, anecdotal experience, and modern clinical trials, one thing is clear. Mushrooms are medicinal powerhouses. And I finally found a brand, a product, a company that I feel really aligns with all of my research and understanding when it comes to the medicinal properties of mushrooms, and that is Alchemy Mushrooms. They grow their mushrooms in California on organic mushroom farms. They keep the whole mushroom in their supplements, and they actually blend mycelium and fruit body in their mushroom powders and capsules to give you the best of both worlds. You can learn more at Alchemy Mushrooms. That's A-L-C-H-E-M-I, alchemymushrooms.com. Use the discount code MUSHROOMHOUR for 20% off your order. Alchemy with an I, mushrooms.com. Hi there. Welcome to Mushroom Hour. Today on Mushroom Hour, we're graced by the presence of one of my favorite biophiliacs and artists, John Ching. John grew up steeped in natural beauty on the island of Oahu, Hawaii, which formed the foundation of his deep fascination with the natural and wild world. A self-taught painter, John's devoted art practice and detailed realism is inspired by the interconnectedness of nature. While dedicated to the minute idiosyncrasies of flora and fauna and funga, John's work is a surreal imagining of what limitless wonders and combinations that nature can produce. New creatures and symbioses emerge in his meticulously rendered oil paintings, exemplifying the endless potential of life on Earth. His work is often driven by his personal desire to find balance between the human and the natural worlds, exploring themes of symbiosis and searching for connections, physical and metaphorical across nature's kingdoms. Highlighting man-made threats to the natural world are a regular theme in his work to raise awareness of and evoke compassion for the kingdoms of life. John's ultimate hope is to inspire love and admiration for the universally unique beauty and intrigue of our world. John, thank you so much for joining us on the Mushroom Hour. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, it is seriously such a joy to get to speak with an artist that I appreciate so much. We were saying before the show, I've got your work hanging all over the house, prints of your work. I wish, I wish originals, but prints <laughs> of your work <laughs> me too. Uh, hanging around the house. I'm really curious to hear about the inspiration and how you think of these. I mean, the intro said it beautifully, these symbioses and new creatures you're imagining crossing between kingdoms. Uh, but to jump into it, I guess, Tell us how it started for you. How were you formed as an artist? What were some of the inspirations that really fed into your path? I don't know. You know, there's always the art kid in school or art kids, you know, if you're lucky. So, yeah, I just always was that kid that drew and like, like to just spend time drawing. <laughs> I think it wasn't till I like started nourishing that, you know, more seriously that my path really unfolded, but it's always been there in, in my life. And obviously growing up in a place like Hawaii, you were surrounded by majesty and landscape and beautiful, amazing creatures, flora, fauna, funga. So talk about that a little bit too, about how that led to, or, or if it led to this current style where you're really focusing on the biological world. I think it, it did lead to it, but sort of in the opposite direction. So I grew up surrounded by some of Earth's most beautiful 
life forms that I, I took it for granted. You know, it was just like very normal to me. <laughs> and so it was always there. I always liked it, but I never really like took time to take a deeper look into it or understand why it was more, it was so special. I mean, also as a kid, you know, like I left the islands when I was 18 to go to college. So it's a lifelong cultivation, I think, the love for nature. So, but I think leaving that and, you know, California where I'm at now is super beautiful too. I mean, so much of this planet is beautiful. You can always find somewhere great to be in. Yeah, I think like it was sort of missing that just abundance of nature, that type of nature too. And I guess just the internet making it accessible to see any creature you want to, you know, just really like open the door for me. And once I started investigating how cool various life forms on this planet are, like I just couldn't stop. And I'll say because, um, you know, as a, as a painter, you spend hours looking at a reference photo so that you can spend hours painting something. And so when you really look at something that long, you get to know so much about it. And, you know, like, I would never know how a certain feather curves a certain way and then tapers off to a different color or something had I not looked at it for so long. So, yeah, paintings really helped me cultivate that too. Talking to so many, both amateur and professional naturalists and mycologists, that's one of the biggest traits or characteristics they always talk about in being a successful naturalist is observation, really keen observation. So interesting. And of course, it makes all the sense in the world to hear that that observation comes through for an artist too. And so you've probably gotten some insights and know some things about creatures that, you know, a lot of people would never recognize, even if they are trained naturalists, just because you've spent so much time looking at it. And I do want to hear a little bit about that inspiration process, because, you know, obviously this is an audio podcast, but everyone should go look at your work because the creatures, the landscapes that you create, the interplays of biological form and making traits of an animal become a plant kind of coming off the, it's really amazing, amazing compositions. How does that inspiration process work for you? I mean, do you find an animal that you're fascinated in, you stare at it for hours and suddenly you say, oh, that kind of looks like a rose coming off their face there or that, you know, how, how does that work for you as, as best you can describe? Yeah, sometimes it is like that where I'll have an animal that I want to paint and like since it's my, I don't want to say brand, but like my shtick or whatever for art, like you have to, <laughs> not a shtick style or right. I'm being cruel, but um, you know what I mean? Like your personal totally. uh, interpretation of it. I will just kind of look at it and let my mind wander and let my yeah, kind of zone out on its form, sort of break its form down into shapes and colors rather than like facial features, for example. I think that's something like in art too, our painters especially, I think that's a skill that we have to develop is sort of like looking at an object and seeing it for its color and its value rather than what it is. Because if you're painting teeth or something, your idea of teeth are, oh, they're white. But like when you actually look at them, they're not white at all. But, you know, your instinct is to just grab white and put it down. So 
you really have to take that time to observe what the actual color is or what the form looks like. And I love nature docs. I spend hours like looking at like photos of, I just go down like image search wormholes. <laughs> like Pinterest is like <laughs> a dangerous uh, gateway for me <laughs> if I want to lose a bunch of time. But yeah, sometimes it clicks. Some, you know, sometimes it really just feels right. Some other times I have to kind of work at it harder or just not. There's some animals where I'm just like, nah, there's nothing, there's nothing there. I'll just paint you as is someday, but <laughs> I have to move on. <laughs> so yeah, that's the fun way of getting to my ideas. Other times it's like, well, they're, they're fun in their own way, but other times it might more be driven by an idea or like something that commentary on something or just how I feel about something and so the idea sort of tells me what animals to use it's like I don't try to use anthropomorphism but I sort of let my intuition tell me what would sort of make sense for the human observer <laughs> of my art right yeah and then I'll I'll find my way towards a flana creature that way so there's kind of two avenues of inspiration. I'm sure there's many, but kind of finding the subject first, the org be guided by the organism basically. And then sometimes you're guided by a message or by the human interpretation of what this art is going to look like. But I love, again, you're pointing out the importance of observation and it's something we don't think about that. Yeah. Your conception, your mental image of what something is, is not the same as what it actually is. And I think so many of us in basic art classes found that out when you're trying to color really anything you see there are shades of like every color embedded in there somewhere yeah I, I can kind of feel that research process that you go through of really absorbing an organism and figuring out how to play with the, all the different forms and colors that we may not immediately think of when we think of a, a parakeet or a deer or any of the subjects that you work yeah. with and just in the background there too I want to make sure we bring this up because I think it's really interesting we just heard your newborn son in the background oh, making a guest appearance <laughs> just a little bit. Yeah. What's that been like? Cause you said right before this, you said that has really started to influence me already. Cause you're a new father. Talk about that a little bit and you can kind of go any direction you want with that. But we've kind of got this sense of John Shing as someone who really appreciates the natural world. You're absorbing, really seeing form and shape and color. And then how does this aspect of being a father start to inform this process as well? Yeah, so my son was born almost six weeks ago, and we're doing a good job at chubbying him up, Project Chubby. <laughs> and yeah, so well, what I was kind of saying is like, it's, I mean, time is crazy. Like, I knew time was relative, and I took that to my advantage and made the most out of my time in general. Like, yeah, I'm always like working on something and... I like to just kind of like get stuff done. And so it's been crazy that like my, when I look back, you know, at the end of the day, like, oh, what did I do? How do I feel about it? It's so basic now, but I'm also like so fine with that. I didn't expect that. I thought I'd like, I don't know. It's It's been a cool surprise. But yeah, seeing the, the change in pace I think like we're talking about observation has allowed me to really like soak in so much more nuance. 
like I was thinking about it the other day and it's like, it's like the difference between riding a bike and walking and what you see on your path. Like, you know, riding a bike, you might notice that there is like a bush with red flowers there, but then you're like gone already. But while you're walking, like you can like really see exactly what type of flower that is, what their stamen looks like, you know, like really cool things. And so having to slow down to just be there with my son or comfort him or feed him or something like, you know, it's all his, his pace. And it really like allows me to, I don't know, I guess wander like in my mind and just visually, which is such a gift because life moves so fast these days. And, you know, we're not even in a bike. We're like on a motorcycle. (laughs) So yeah. On a rocket ship, it feels like sometimes. Yes. That's a better one. So, yeah, I think that's as far as I've gotten with, like, (laughs) what I've observed. I mean, there's so much in there. They're slowing down, and you just said, I'm on his schedule. So part of that is now making it completely about, I mean, you're always basing your work and compositions on other organisms, but now you're basing, like, your day-to-day life completely to another being to take care of it and... Well, and it's funny because it would synergistically work with with your work, this idea of observing and slowing down and then kind of extrapolating that insight. I know my answer to this, but do you think <laughs> society in general could learn a lot from John Ching's lesson in New Fatherhood, which is to slow down? I mean, do you think in a lot of ways modernity can really think about, I mean, we all love progress and efficiency. You know, I want... Amazon in five minutes, but do you think that we would benefit a lot in terms of that all important balance with nature that I think is so much at the center of your work? Do you think that we could really benefit and all the organisms around us could benefit if we just slow down a little bit? I mean, I'm biased, so definitely. I'll add something to that too from my experience just, you know, in the last six weeks is that slowing down being on his time and observing his condition has really like been a, a good practice in empathy. And I think that that in mixed with like taking more time and slowing down would be such a great benefit to society and how we treat each other and live with each other. Because, you know, I get super frustrated, especially at the beginning, like when he's just screaming and I can't get him to stop and I'm doing all the things and yeah. And then, and just like physically that sound like releases a bunch of chemicals that, that lingers like adrenaline and I don't know, stress and whatever, but. Well, as, as we've evolved to for very important purposes that does right. need to immediately trigger that response in dad. So you're ready. I had to remind myself of that daily that. This is just how we've done it. So, <laughs> But, you know, it's like I now have to, like, see things from his point of view. I can't just be like, I'm stressed and I'm, like, you know, freaking out right now. I need to, like, look at him and be like, okay, that face, I'm getting to know that that face means, like, you've got something to pass. <laughs> You're trying to release yourself, you know. And right. I know what that feels like. Oh, that sucks. So, like, let me, I don't know, try different um, ways of holding you or comforting you to like see what the the sweet spot is and like 
I've, it's funny because I have kind of found it. Like there's like a position that I can get into that. I mean, this is like TMI, but um, to let them release. And it's such a good feeling because I'm like, sweet, problem solved. Let's go to sleep. <laughs> right. right. Well, what you're talking about is this subtle interplay and like, you know, we're talking about how some of these insights inform your work and maybe how we can all learn something from the lessons of a budding father. But I think it also shows that, you know, maybe for new parents, a great skill to develop is observation and patience. I think those are things you naturally had through your work. But I mean, just developing observation and patience could be such a great tool for new parents out there, which I'm sure they know. And like you said, in the heat of the moment, when baby's crying, I've been there with my brother and my nieces. It's hard to want to observe and have patience when you're like, how do, <laughs> how do I make it stop? Um, yeah. I, I definitely wanted to tease that out a little bit because I thought that was that was powerful. And I know for any new parents out there, they're probably going to get something out of that as well. And kind of bringing it then back to the art, another concept that I wanted to make sure we brought up was this idea of biological form. And, you know, without getting too out there, I sometimes wonder you know, if there is, for lack of a better term, some kind of template, because when you think about how some of these biological or just natural forms mimic things you see across organisms, but even inanimate objects, you know, you start seeing the same forms when you do that process, like you were talking about, of just seeing color and form for what they are, not what they're making or what the thing is, but when you just see that form, the classic example uh, that I think Paul Stamets and Louis Schwartzberg kind of embedded in all of our minds was this idea of mycelium and how that looks like neurons in a brain. And, you know, it's so interesting to think about that. So I guess, do you feel like you're pulling from some library of natural forms when you're composing your work? And then further from that, do you think there is some kind of template in the natural world that like makes for, I know that's a massive question. <laughs> I know that's not, I don't think anyone's qualified to answer that. But the, the idea that there is some like template to how forms organize and that's why we see them repeated. I mean, what what's going on there? If you can channel that into some kind of answer. <laughs> yeah, I'll try. I think definitely yes. Like for me, it's like the way that I see it, we are all on this planet, therefore we are all related and connected, you know, at the level, even if you want to just stop there at, at, we're on the same planet, you know, but we all not only live on this, on this planet and are a part of it, but like, kind of like get a really sweet spot, in my opinion, of like evolution and climate, you know, what we used to have, like, of just like beauty and abundance. And, you know, I, I think when you see, you know, mycelium and when you see the roots of a tree and the neurons of a brain and, you know, bringing it back to pregnancy, like what a placenta looks like, if you've ever seen what that looks like, it's, it's like a tree root system. It's really crazy. Wow. Lightning, you know, and it's, they look alike because they're earthlings <laughs> or earth things, you know, and <laughs> so... Yeah, I, I love to play with that because it's it's obvious, you know, we've all like gotten to this point in the history of life on this planet together. So, of course, we're going to have a lot of things that visually look alike and just behave similarly too. that's what our what our physics allows for, I guess. 
And there you go. Yeah, this idea. I mean, it's the same forces at play that dictate the form of all of these things. So of course you would get kind of similar, similar form. Part of me That's my opinion thought, on it. <laughs> well, and part of me thought John Chang might reveal in the fabric of the universe how all these things are created and what the templates are. And he's tapped into them to create his art. But that was actually a very grounded answer that I think all of us can relate to. <laughs> Do any compositions for you stand out? as times where you really feel like you, I'm sure a lot of them do this in some respect or another, but is there kind of a work for you that stands out as where you really had a breakthrough in that concept where you realize that, wow, this form could overlay on this organism, you know, and this is something that I never would have thought of, you know, and I, I have one hanging in my living room of, fawns you know baby deers with like stink horns coming out of their head i'm like how did he think of that but are there <laughs> any ones that stand out for you where you thought like man i just really hit on a fascinating interplay of form across the natural world here i mean i think the first one that comes to mind is the first one that i did and it was it almost like didn't happen, which is I think how a lot of like important things <laughs> tend to always, always to a mistake. Yeah. yeah, because um, so I was I was in a group show in San Francisco at my first, you know, gallery Wonderland SF. They're like the ones who first were like, hey, put your art in our on our walls. So that was cool. So the show was running for like maybe two months or something, which normally it was just a month. And my piece sold immediately. And the curator gallery owner was like, hey, like if you want and you have time to make another piece, like we can replace it because it's two months. So yeah, the collector can take it home earlier, get it off the wall. And, you know, at that point I was just doing it on the side and I'm like, yeah, like let me make you something. And I, I don't really know how the idea came to me. So it was based on Frida and, you know, she always had, or the pictures that we see, like, flowers in her hair somewhere you know right. she always you know was adorned and I, w I think I just saw this like gala cockatoo um it's like gorgeous like pink really like friendly faced cockatoo it's like pink and gray so it's like flower I was thinking like flowers in her hair and then I was looking at the feathers and I was like well that kind of looks like a flower and then yeah I just was like maybe I just paint a flower head and that was one one where I just, I think it was the first, one of the first lessons that like my intuition talks to me and so I should follow it. And so I just was like, oh, I need an idea. I'll just paint that. And <laughs> it was great. And I was so happy with it and everything worked out. Like sometimes, you know, you, you think of a painting and you try it and it doesn't really work. And you're like, darn, it was, the idea was cooler than what it, what I can do. <laughs> but this one turned out to be, you know, as cool as I thought it could be. And um, I think I just used that as a, that was fun to do. Let's, let's aim to do that again. And I just like, didn't stop. <laughs> I just kept trying out new things. And yeah, and then it just, I mean, it's so much fun. It's, a, it's not easy to do, like to transform things or like really see, it does take a lot of like what we've been talking about background work and time to just think and observe but yeah it's like super fun <laughs> yeah so that was the seminal moment where this style 
was created, this playing with natural forms on an organism. And it sounds like that was very much informed by these powers of observation. Do you have an example of a piece then that was created where you had a message in mind and then you found some forms that you hoped communicated that message? Because like all art, I think people end up partially their own projections, partially what's in the art. Everyone kind of forms their own meaning around that. But yeah, I guess an example of a piece where you had a message, what that message was and what the piece was. The one that comes to mind is when I painted last year. It's called Vital. It's a painting of a little hummingbird carrying. Have you ever seen like, do you know what like a, one of like a weaver, the bird? I don't know what type of weavers, but they like basically like weave these really cool nests that hang down and it has like kind of an oh, sure. opening and it looks like super like mid-century modern <laughs> kind of. I know. Yeah. We've all wanted that tree house. Yeah. 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 So I was just thinking, so basically, yeah, the hummingbird is carrying a nest like that, but instead of leaves, it's made out of kelp. And in the hole is sort of like a orb of water that's carrying a piece of coral and, and some fishes. And that sort of is like a little mini habitat, like formed in this little nest. So the idea started with just looking at our, our healthcare workers and like feeling so bad for them and, but also like so proud of them and just everything. Like, I don't know, it was crazy. Like, I mean, we've never been through a pandemic before and to see healthcare workers just like saving person after person and like really just getting battered and, and just keeping us, keeping us going was very inspiring to me and I felt so much gratitude towards them. So I wanted to make a piece about just the idea of like carrying a big load, like a heavy load all by yourself, your tiny little hummingbird self. You're carrying this whole, you're keeping this whole habitat intact. Right. You've created the network to support it. It's just like, you're, and, and the hummingbird sort of like transporting it in my, you know, idea to a safer place and so yeah that that idea was just thinking about how hard they were working and how thinking of all the people they're helping keep up was what i just started thinking about and then came up with that piece <laughs> the image i got when you just we were describing the composition is like they're carrying this world they're carrying this oasis with them this little hummingbird is carrying all of our collective oases hopes and fears and everything carrying it that's man that's really beautiful and like i said i'm sure every piece has some kind of meaning i know one of the big themes for you running through it is kind of this balance with our natural world how does that channel into pieces for you i mean is there certain imagery that you use to convey that is it just the piece itself or how does that kind of overarching message of waking people up to hey we need to achieve a better balance with nature where how does that show up in your work do you think i think it's shifted and yeah now that i've heard you read my bio thank you for reading it so well i might need to uh to use that audio clip for something because you've got a great voice and it sounded really Anytime. good <laughs> but i think before i used to paint the problem or paint how i felt about the problem you know and i wanted people to 
to see what I thought about the problem. And not in any dark way, like that's always been my goal is to not paint something that people don't want to look at. Sometimes it's difficult or something, but I'll still make it beautiful so you'll want to look at it. Um, but like, you know, I'm not going to paint mutilation or stuff because even though I feel passionately about killing our wildlife, like we don't need another image of that brutality. And it's better to create empathy than, you know, shock or horror. So, so yeah, so before I used to sort of want to just paint about it, but now I, I paint how I feel about how beautiful things are. Like my goal now is to just get people to spend time looking at nature more through my paintings of nature, you know, trying to like highlight how beautiful certain parts of it is. And, you know, then I'll like sneak in some background meaning because it's art and I have to, you know, it's like, I don't know if it's the right path, but it's what I've found my way to for now is, is to just try to get people to really love nature again. And if it's through sort of surreal, you know, interpretations of it. And I sort of argue that it's not surreal. Like nature is so wild and we know so little about it that like it could just be natural. Like what we think is supernatural is actually just plain natural. So yeah, just paint, put it on display, put the beauty and the coolness and the, the amazingness of nature on display for people. Well, and I really resonate with that path. I think stark imagery has its place to communicate grim realities, but man, reality is already really grim. I've seen enough dystopia. I've seen enough. So I like that idea that you're inspiring people by beauty to then take action or just subtly change the way people think and move throughout the natural world. I think that's an extremely effective methodology as well. And it's interesting because I think so many people who get obsessed with mycology and mushrooms that ends up being their gateway to see these beautiful little mushrooms you know they don't need to see dystopia to want to save nature they see these beautiful mushrooms that they want to preserve or these mushrooms they love to eat that they want to preserve mm -hmm. and that ends up being what encourages them to explore nature more and then suddenly be more interested in conservation and protecting it so yeah i think there's definitely something there about inspiring people through you know their desire to protect the beauty that's there but first you have to show them the beauty and get them interested and get them hooked on it yeah uh, and you know that's something too that in your art not every theme but man mushrooms show up a lot which is why <laughs> i fell in love with them i mean they're beautiful compositions anyway we have plenty of them that don't have any mushrooms but when did mushrooms kind of make their appearance for you um, was that always a natural form you played with was there a piece or something or a mushroom maybe you saw in the wild where you're like, whoa, I need to look at these? Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, it's funny how I want people to look at nature and be in nature so much, but so many things that I learn about nature is through the internet. <laughs> right. But yeah, I live in LA and I'm in the studio a lot, so I need to make more time. But um, I think like early on, I, I had such a limited knowledge and exposure to mushrooms that I just thought of it as a cap. So if I wanted to use it in a painting, like that's how it would show up. And I still love, you know, that form of it. But I think over the years, just sort of digging into nature and different pockets of it had like exposed how many cool different forms there are of mushrooms and colors and characteristics and stuff. And so 
it's made its way into my work more recently. And I think that it's in the zeitgeist of the last like couple years. Like there's definitely something going on in the collective unconscious or whatever, you know, we're tuned into. And I think like Louis Schwartzberg has like a lot to do with it. Like Fantastic Fungi was like, I watched it twice immediately, like back to back. Like I rewatched it right afterwards. It's so beautiful. It's so full of knowledge and really just is coming from a place of love and admiration. And so that, that helped really like get me interested. And yeah, the more it's, it's funny, like, it's like finding mushrooms. It's like, I'm like, Oh, let me take a closer look at this. And then when I get closer, there's like this whole world, you know, which you're (laughs) helping build and be part of. And so it's really, it's been really cool. I feel like a newbie. I still am a, a newbie, but I'm excited for my recent mycophilia. <laughs> I love that idea. Yeah, once when you're out foraging, once your eyes start to recognize, you see that first mushroom and suddenly you're like, oh, wait. And you start looking at the forest floor and seeing them everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I think when we first understand that there is some kind of mycology culture, yeah, you see a seminal movie and suddenly you start looking around and you're like, wait, these mushrooms are everywhere. Mm-hmm. And yeah, this is definitely... Definitely the mushroom moment. Uh, and it sounds like your art, much like me and the media we create, was very much a symptom of folks like Louis Schwartzberg, Paul Stamen, so many great mycologists and mycophiles bringing us this message and a lot of times bringing us the beauty and the majesty of these organisms. Yeah. It has really gotten us to see things in an entirely different way and talk about expanding the palette for someone who works with natural forms and themes right? start looking at fungi yeah john king's palette just explodes totally um yeah just to go back to those two dudes you know it's like what i'm trying to do too is just make it easy for people to absorb it see it you know put it in front of everybody tell everyone how cool it is like really just because we're just bombarded now with like everything and so to really boil it down actually kind of makes it poetic too you know like a a good poem is some can argue is is concise or like you know so (laughs) the forms that i'm getting to explore now and see are really fun and so complex some of them i'm like wow i don't that's intimidating but i'll go for it (laughs) and it's this also this metaphor of you know at the beginning i said flora fauna funga which is this idea of people like juliana ferci Paul State, all these people we've been talking about have been getting us to more readily in our brains and our mindscapes integrate mushrooms as part of mm-hmm. the vast natural tapestry. And so in your work, it is, it's fun to just see them there, but they're not necessarily the focus. They're with everything else in kind of this harmony. And yeah, I see that metaphor as our collective consciousness reaches that way. It shows up in John Ching's art that way, that mushrooms are now embedded in the natural landscapes. So, yeah, really interesting. And then what has the reception been for your work? Uh, you know, I'm a huge fanboy. I love them all. I have them all in my house. But <laughs> but what has the response been from people who have seen your art and gotten a, gotten a chance to commune with your art? I mean, it's been great from what I can tell. It's been, it's been so kind and enthusiastic. Um, like, I'm still getting used to people looking and thinking about my art like I don't know you know you kind of just make it and I feel 
passionately and deeply about certain art and artists, but I think I just forget how art touches the general public or or something. I don't know, but it's been cool. It's also been a a cool way to connect with people like like minded people that you know feel the same way about nature and other themes that I paint about. And I, yeah, I mean, as as much as people like shit on Instagram, it's been such a great way. I mean, we've connected there, and I. That's the main way that I'm receiving any feedback from folks. I mean, sometimes emails, but yeah. So I think it's been cool. It's been really nice and generous, and I'm just like really grateful that like folks are like looking at my art and like actually looking at my art <laughs> <laughs> yeah people are actually absorbing it and like yeah i guess you said you were part-time before i mean is this full-time artist now and i guess maybe we can talk about that because we've been talking about the work and playing with these massive concepts that are so interesting to talk about but you know as the artist and as a man kind of on this journey of putting your creations out to the world which always takes some bravery and to really kind of put yourself out there and much less the time and materials invested you know, are you a full-time artist now or what has that journey been like uh, for you as an artist? Yeah, I, I am doing this full-time. I, yeah, thanks. I've been... That's that's awesome. It yeah. was a goal of mine and I just, yeah, I just saved up a bunch to buy myself some time and just like went for it. And it was, you know, it's tough. Like, especially if you don't really know the game I maybe like went a little too early. I was just very, you know, excited. And I didn't go to art school, so I felt like I needed to catch up. So I was just like, well, I'll just like take a leap, you know, instead of hop. But yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of like painting where like every painting, unless you paint like the exact same thing, like you're kind of always taking those steps and trying some, something new and seeing if it works and adjusting if it doesn't work quite right. And so that was sort of my, you know, slow hustle to where I'm at now is like, okay, let's try group shows or let's try prints and let's try different things to piece together to live off of. And yeah, not, I don't know. The last like couple of years has been really good to me. And I've found a nice amount of support that thankfully helps me, helps keep the ship going helps me feed my little bait like you know my little dude now so of course um it's cool it's it's a lot of work it's the most work that i i'm a hard worker and it's more work than i thought i was getting myself into but so the the early days are really hard especially when you're trying to make quality work and you it gets uncomfortable i guess but now I don't know. And it's like, it doesn't, as an artist, I don't think anyone can really like bank on things staying the same. So I'm always very grateful for what I have at the moment because, you know, I know like there's always new artists, there's only a limited attention span and you could just be deemed, I don't know, like not interesting anymore, (laughs) but that's not going to change, you know, what I'm doing. So I'm really grateful right now. That was the key piece that I thought was probably true for you is that the creation of the art and the really the process of observing natural forms and thinking of these interesting amalgamations to make your own, 
it sounds like you're in love with that whole process. So in that case, yeah, you reap the the benefits and the gratitude and all the good things that come with it, but also kind of still in love with the actual work itself, which I think for so many people's dreams, there is that reality of like, you better love staring at forms for hours and painting things for hours and hours and hours because that's what your life will be. So that's really interesting to hear about. And I guess how long does a piece take? I, maybe I should have done this at the beginning. I don't know. <laughs> what is the medium, I guess, that you work with? Because I have prints. I can't tell exactly what the medium is. How long does a piece take you? You know, all those kind of things, the actual nitty gritty of that process of making the art. Yeah. The medium's oil. Um, I paint an oil paint and I use just oil or this thing called liquid as sort of the medium to oil, you know, to get various like flows. But yeah, it's hard for me to like quantify how long a piece takes because I can say how long it took me to sit down and like paint the actual thing. But like each piece comes to me differently at different paces. And sometimes I like I have ideas in my sketchbook that I'm just like, I know you're going to be something someday. I just like need to learn more about nature <laughs> to like find your <laughs> your you know moment. And so... I don't know, do I count the time that I spent investigating that and, and working on an idea that didn't work out to lead to something else? It just depends. But I mean, I should talk to artists more or painters more about how long things take them physically to paint. Because I think I'm a, a fairly quick painter, but like like 50 to 100 hours of sitting down painting time for most pieces. And I'm starting to work slightly larger than I have been before so I'm yeah maybe that's wrong actually now that the baby's here I should probably like keep it where it's at but <laughs> you know and then there's like the time that it takes to like dry and then varnish and that time and then frame it and stuff so like from initial concept of like let me think of a painting to like when it's actually on a wall like that's months and yeah it's an interesting scale of time to work at i think because a lot of people you know it's like your work days eight hours nine hours and then repeat <laughs> definitely requires some vision to stick to creating when you can't see probably interstitial progress that quickly you got to kind of keep the vision just keep going and I had a feeling it was something like that, like hundreds of hours of time because they are so beautifully put together. But it's funny to think of your sketchbook as kind of growing all these different ideas, like its own little natural world. And yeah, they'll come in their own time. Because that was another question that I had is, do you have multiple canvases going? Or is it kind of the sketchbook is where all of that dreaming lives and then you're kind of one work at a time? Yeah, it depends on what I'm doing. But if I'm painting a show... I usually have several ideas, you know, ready to go and, and I'll have them at different stages, you know? So if I'm like bored of painting feathers, I can paint a flower or a leaf or a mushroom, you know, and then come back to it. So I like working that way. It's kind of a luxury, I think, because like, I've just been kind of working at such a fast pace up until now that like the ideas, once they're done, they're being made. And so kind of like having a, a pile of ideas to sort of work on at the same time is something I need to like 
stock up for, I guess. And I'm kind of just like using it as I go. So, yeah. And you mentioned you were kind of scaling up compositions. Yeah. A bold move <laughs> in, in the face of fatherhood. Uh, but you know, the prints we get are 16 by 20. How, how big are your compositions usually? What is your dream for, you know, what kind of size you, you would make into the future? Yeah, the pieces aren't too far off from the prints, which I think is cool. So yeah, my comfort zone's been sort of like 16 by 20 to like 20 by 24. And, but I, I love 30 by 40 inches as a, as a rectangle to paint in. I don't know, it gives you a lot of space to, to have things going on that, you know, you can have a more narrative arc to the piece but while still allowing space, enough space to get into the details and really like paint that bird. (laughs) So yeah, but that does do take a lot more time just in preparation. You know, it's a more complicated composition. So it takes a lot more planning, a lot more like image finding and just, you know, building up your, your arsenal of tools to make it happen. But yeah, I'm really curious at how fatherhood's going to change my pace of productivity. I hope my galleries don't get mad at me if I give them a bunch of <laughs> tiny works. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm pretty optimistic, but well, I was optimistic, but yeah, the last six weeks, I'm like, am I ever going to finish a painting? Like, I don't know. I'm going to become an abstract painter, maybe. <laughs> just throw some paint at it black line on a page yeah that's the work yeah yeah you know i was holding out hope that we might see a john ching mural on some huge buildings i can only imagine a forest yeah full of your creatures i want to do that so bad and it's been it's been that goal that i keep like being like next year i'm gonna that's my goal it's it's intimidating to me i know i would have a lot of fun with it but yeah, there's only so much time too. <laughs> so, but one day, sure. one day I'm really, it's going to happen. Yeah, it's going to be fun. And that will be a day that we're all cheering for because I would love to see see that. I didn't know that was something you were thinking of, but that's <laughs> kind of what you think of when you see one of your pieces. Man, imagine a forest or a landscape full of these organisms. And we've been talking so much about your work. You know, where are the places people can find your work. I know some artists are kind of only gallery or you can buy direct from them or, you know, how can people find your work? Uh, if there are any gallery shows, tell us about that. And where can they get copies of your work to adorn their homes and offices and everything else? Thanks for asking. Um, yeah, I, I have, I show at a number of galleries in LA. Um, I just had a show at Corey Hufford Gallery and I also show with Haven Gallery in New York and Bain Art Gallery in Australia. Um, and I am, yeah, I, I have a lot of gallery commitments. Right now, it's crazy that I have like literally one painting available because I used to have like so many more. <laughs> so <laughs> so there's one and I'm, and I'm always making new works. I'm really hoping that I can find some time to do a studio sale because I understand that like, there's a certain demographic of person that can shop at galleries, even though galleries offer like payment plans and stuff like it's, that's, I mean, original art is not cheap. And like, I, it's, it's a necessity to price things where they are, but I am hoping to do a studio sale because that's where I do smaller works and try to keep the price point. 
a little more approachable for like normal people. But prints are my way of, you know, really trying to make things accessible to everybody. And that going back to murals, that's why I want to do a mural because I just love that it's, it's full access. There are no boundaries except geographical to you getting to like experience that. I love public art, but um, yeah, prints are on my website johnchingart.com it's no h in the john so j-o-n ching art and then actually uh, if i could plug i have a calendar coming out i just finished uh it's it's currently being printed so i'm like super nervous but super excited um i'm really really happy with this one it's i mean i always am but like i always try to like top the year before and like this one's really good (laughs) so i'm gonna share that soon yeah, so, you know, you can find everything on my newsletter or Instagram, like where new originals are are popping up. I'm only going to be in a few group shows for the next year. I, you know, put some side time, some time aside to enjoy this, this moment in my life. But, um, yeah, I think next fall is my next big show. Until then, I'm kind of working on small projects and trying to, work as little as possible uh to be <laughs> honest <laughs> i'm i'm spending a lot of time cooking i love cooking and so that's where i'm being uh, expressing my creativity and do any of the cooked dishes feature wild mushrooms by any chance I, i'm biased <laughs> but how are we featuring mushrooms in any of your recipes yeah oftentimes I don't know about wild. I wish that I had more access to those, but yeah, when I do, like, that's great. Yeah, for sure. Hit me up if you want an idea or something. I mean, it's a lot of stir fries and stuff, but, you know, cool sauces and combinations of stuff. Man, you're so creative. I'm sure you make some amazing food. You know, we're just talking about where to find your work. How do you feel about NFTs? Are we going to see a John Ching NFT uh, floating around the internet or anything like that. And, you know, if you're like, yeah, I'm waiting by asking that question, I'm wading into waters I know nothing about. <laughs> but here I have here I have an artist and all I hear about are NFTs. How do you feel about that? Yeah, it's funny. I'm like, I'm so slow to adapt to anything. Like, it's like comical how long it took me to get a smartphone. And then even then, <laughs> I just used like the Instagram app. Like, <laughs> but um you know, if someone wants to help direct the ship of an NFT creation, I'm open to it. It seems weird to me. I don't really, I get it for digital artists. And I think it's super rad that like their medium finally gets like a crazy way to be monetized and to to have value. It went from like zero to a million, a billion, like, infinity whatever, you know? And so, um, I don't know. I think money's weird too. So like, it's, it feels like, <laughs> money feels like weird. a, that's right. Yeah. It's like, I don't know. It behaves in weird ways and it's behaving like money right now. Unless like the value is not really based on artistic qualities. I think it's more based on, I don't know. It's, I don't know. <laughs> so hype and money. Yeah. yeah marketing, marketing. So, uh, it's, it's the new art form. Uh, it's the art form of, of our generation is marketing. Um, it's not true. <laughs> so 
probably not. But like maybe if it's if it sticks around, you know, then I'll eventually do it. I'll try anything, you know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I guess if I was more money driven too, I would try to like get in right now. But it's I don't really have an interest. Yeah, and I guess it is partially dictated by that that medium. I mean, you're doing physical art. What are you going to embed some like? microchip in it like i said <laughs> i don't really understand how that works but i'm glad i asked it because we got some golden insights like money is weird it's like <laughs> yes it absolutely is and it behaves like money yes it absolutely does there's a force unto itself that does not make sense most of the time really interesting really interesting and you know another big question as someone who really does observe the natural world and even if it's through a computer screen is intimately familiar with a lot of different organisms and plays with these themes of how we can better coexist with these organisms around us. I, I know we talked about slowing down earlier, but in your mind, because I'm sure you've thought about it, how do you think humans can live in a better harmony with this natural world? I mean, in your mind, what what is like a core tenet or something that we can embrace that you think would help a lot? Hmm. You know, I think if it if there was just like one main thing we can do right now is learn as much as we can about indigenous ways of living with nature because our species developed that knowledge. Like one of the, the best things why we exist now is that we are able to think and problem solve and then pass that knowledge down so the next generation can think and solve above that. And we've been doing that our whole, the entire time our species has been to this point. But in like the last two or three generations, we decided, nah, we don't need any of that. Let's do this other thing. Like, look, this, <laughs> if you burn this, this happens. And like, at this point, <laughs> we should use our big brains and understand that that's not a sustainable way. Yeah, you can do you can do that, but we can't do that forever. And the sooner we stop, the better. So I just want to preserve all the knowledge that we developed, gathered, and, you know, passed down through Indigenous people. And, you know, they're still here. They can still teach us. We just have to listen to them and we have to give them the microphone. I think that will get us headed that's the right direction you know we need to just turn around and go that way like turn back i also think more pessimistically that like it's not about us finding a balance with nature anymore it's nature finding a balance with us nature always finds balance and you know these these natural disasters that like our human forms aren't great at surviving <laughs> is its way of balancing it out. Um, there's an equilibrium and you, you can feel, you can think that we shouldn't be, you know, we're so above life that we shouldn't be held to respect that equilibrium, but we don't have a choice in it. Um, and so I think it's, hopefully we can do both. We can try to find our balance with nature, but nature will find its balance with us. Two points beautifully, beautifully elucidated. I basically laid at your feet like, tell us how to save the world, John Ching. <laughs> and I think you actually gave us two really good insights. 
And yeah, so many times that's the answer. And I love how you laid that out. It's like, we don't throw away tens to hundreds of thousands of years of human experience just because new technology emerged. You have to learn how to integrate it. And you know, maybe that's what those decades have been is us figuring out, okay, we went way too far in the wrong direction. Now we need to go back and incorporate all that hard-won knowledge that basically got us to this point mm -hmm. and have some kind of sensible direction going forward before natural equilibrium kicks us right back too severely. Yeah, I have a great metaphor or example because it is finding your limit, you know? And like, there's a reason why I don't binge drink anymore and why I don't go to Indian buffets anymore because I have pushed myself far <laughs> past my limit the natural forces of what the physics that I put on my body took its toll and I learned, okay, that's too far. Let me uh, find a nice happy spot back this way. And so it's an opportunity, I guess, you know, like we know this yes. is the limit. This is the limit. We can never do this again. Let's head back the other way and like, you know, find, find the sweet spot. Hurry for us. <laughs> I love those examples because everyone can relate to that. Yeah, <laughs> collectively as a society, we went to the Indian buffet, binge drank ourselves into oblivion, and now it's time to say, oh, that was funny, but yeah, we're never doing that again. Right. Uh, yeah, well, like I said, really, really well elucidated. I love the answers to that question. And I guess then to wrap, to, to wrap things up, you know, any other big future plans worth noting? I mean, we've already talked about a new child creating massive murals somewhere in the distant future, gallery shows, everything. But is there anything else that stands out to you that you want to make sure to mention as kind of a, a future plan or project? I don't think so. I think like where I'm at right now in my life is I, I feel like I've been planting so many seeds and they're starting to, you know, blossom and ripen and stuff so I just kind of want to like keep those things going you know try to just like pump them full of fertilizer and make them as like rich and great as I can but yeah there's been a lot of like ground laying in the past I don't know five seven years so I'm I kind of just want to like dance on the ground now <laughs> and then <laughs> and then I'll you know build a ladder and and climb somewhere else but yeah yeah, take time to enjoy, take time to enjoy scaling that that mountain of achievement, if you will. And I do want to make sure we give one like huge recognition. How much has your partner helped in this whole endeavor? Because I'm sure, like you said, it's a leap of faith. So many new things for you. How much has has she been a big part of that? Um, everything. I mean, honestly, it's it gave me so much support to lean on and I leaned on it, you know, um, to have her believe in what I was doing and to encourage me to keep doing it. I, you can probably tell, I like think a lot about things sometimes and, um, you know, I should probably get a therapist, but I've just been, um, <laughs> shouldn't we all? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now I did, I understand the difference between a therapist and a partner, whether I do something about that is a different question, but yeah, no, she's wow. been amazing. Wow, that's a huge one. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, I couldn't have done it without her. She grew our baby and, like, he has eyelashes now because of her still. Like, those are growing in and, like, whoa, this is insane. <laughs> like, he has eyelashes now. Wow. 
So, you know, I just try my best to keep her fed so she can feed him. But she's, yeah, she's my hero. And everyone that likes my art should probably, like, you know, write her a thank you letter. So that's all <laughs> I have to say about it. And you just put that in perspective. You know, we're talking about being an artist. It's like women grow other human <laughs> beings. Yeah. It's like talk about the master artists and creators, man. I love that. Right. I love that answer. The reason I asked that question is I feel that way about my partner. So it's really amazing to hear you talk about that. Yeah. Um, well, I guess then I'll kind of wrap it up with three of the questions that I like to ask all of my guests. And I know, you know, this wasn't strictly about mushrooms or fungi. So feel free to go whatever direction you want in talking about these questions. But, you know, the first one, I feel like you probably do have a great answer for because you've probably looked at a lot and have a different appreciation for shape and form, but a mushroom or fungus that you love and why? I really like lion's mane. I just think it's like so unique. I don't know, like a little scraggly puff ball. Like it's like <laughs> a little magic, you know, thing. Yeah, I think like just as a form, it's really cool. And then when you like zoom in and see all its little like tentacles and that, you know icicles tentacles, yeah icicles yeah. and it does look like icicles i tried to paint it once as icicles but then it just looked like icicles so i was like well that doesn't really work sometimes it's like too <laughs> on the nose you know and you're like people won't really even see the switch because it just looks like that but yeah and then also i mean i haven't done any of my own research but i've heard that it has really cool properties that help our brain and that, see, that's the type of indigenous knowledge that we've collected that I want to just explore and want to build upon, you know? It's like, out of all the things to put in our mouths, like, <laughs> we figured out this thing, it does this cool thing to our brain. Like, yeah, let's, let's take advantage of that. We can be superhumans. Yes, yes. And of course, that is indigenous knowledge. Someone at some point had to decide to eat that thing. And that got us to where we are today. And I think lion's mane holds a special place in so many people's hearts. So yeah, you can never go wrong. A great answer. Visually amazing, tastes amazing, medicinal benefits. Maybe it's regrowing our brains. So yes, can't go wrong with lion's mane. And then we've talked a little bit about you developing this relationship, this inspiration of fungi and mushrooms. But what do you think that relationship has given to you? If you can just boil it down to maybe a lesson they've taught you or a new perspective you know what is this relationship that like you said is in its infancy i'm sure you're going to learn so much more mm -hmm. um, but what is this relationship with fungi given to you i mean i think it's um just a it's really deepened my appreciation for natural history and like you know i did not understand how crucial they were to what life looks like now um but also like to life now <laughs> i mean like and i think it's it's so fascinating that like we were related to it like our you know lineage breaks off from them and so that relationship is so cool and has given me such a more deeper connection to yeah so i think really i'm i've enjoyed understanding how critical they are in our interconnected web and yeah, it, it's like, they're so humble, you know, like they don't even, we didn't even, they're just doing it all like without, you know, at a different scale, like just, uh, we're not even noticing it, but everything's so 
built upon it. So I love hearing it from perspective of someone who's worked so much with natural subjects to think that discovering this has added kind of another layer for you. Cause I think so many of us find that, that it adds this whole new layer. So even someone keenly observant working with natural subjects has that same feeling about discovering the vast potential and powers of, of fungi. And then kind of building off of that, as we talked about this mycological wave that's influenced some of your work and influenced so many people right now, you know, exploding in that collective consciousness. How do you hope that changes society for, for the better? Maybe in the vein of some of what you've already talked about, about moving toward a better balance with nature. How do you hope this rising tide of, of mycophilia feeds into that? I think like there's, yeah, what's, what I think is necessary is to cultivate as much love as we can, Re refine that love and re respect for the natural world as possible. And I think this wave of mycophilia is a big push, you know, towards that larger wave that needs to happen. So it's it's cool. I think it's leading it in some way, in, in some ways. But I think like it just really adds to this this necessity that we need to acknowledge that we are nature and what we do to it is we're doing it to ourselves, you know, and mushrooms connect so much i guess so maybe it, that it can be a way to connect us you know it's, it can use its visual or mental mycelial network to connect us to the larger organisms you know that we need to live <laughs> so true and even just understanding how they work because a lot of times we don't have a visual representation of some of those mycorrhizal networks and things mm -hmm. But just understanding it in our heads seems to make new connections and change how we see things. It's it's like even without that powerful visual prompt, somehow understanding them adds a new layer to our understanding interconnectedness. So yeah, I, I definitely, definitely see that as well. Well, John, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Talking about your art, giving us like such thoughtful answers, amazing perspectives. And I know I just through massive questions, lumped them all together. And then you turn out a beautiful answer that leaves us with a lot of insights. So yeah, just thank you for coming on and being a guest. It's been a pleasure. That's really cool of you to say thanks. Um, and yeah, this was so much fun. Thank you for inviting me on. I'm super stoked that we got to have this time together and this conversation. Yeah, I hope your listeners found it interesting and just you know appreciate all of your time for for taking the time so thank you